episode 35 of Design EDU Today, the podcast series discussing topics concerning the state of interactive design education at institutions of higher learning. I am your host, Gary Rosance, Assistant Professor of Graphic Design at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. In this episode, we will be discussing the staggering number of titles out there used to categorize designers and the not always perfect step-by-step design process, including where content strategy fits in on a classroom project. We also cover designing with real content versus using lorem ipsum and ways to expose students to working in multidisciplinary teams while still in school. Today's guest is Emmeline Baker. Emmeline's currently working as a product designer with Britain Co., a digital media and commerce company that enables creativity through inspirational content in online classes. Before that, Emmeline was the design lead at Block, an online program for learning development and design with a mentor, where she built the product design team as the first designer and its design lead. Emmeline's worked with Fortune 500s to companies of five, and currently writes about all things interactive design and about the challenges of designing at a startup. Welcome, Emmeline. Hey, Gary. Great to <laughs> great to meet you. Yep. Uh, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show. Um, so before we get into the conversation, I want to let listeners to know, uh, know about an, an article that you wrote called Job Titles in the Design Community. So uh, huh. listeners, uh, from this research Emmeline did into position um, openings on the Dribble job board, uh, she discovered that the most popular two job titles were UX, UI designer in some combination of those two words and product des- um, designer. So I'm mentioning this article for two reasons. First, I there's a lot in that article that I'm not going to ask to rehash into this podcast. Just read the article. And two, while it is a small sample size, it's a really strong indicator of the skills that our students will need upon graduation. So I kind of wanted to you know bring this out as, hey, we should be looking at this and these are things that we should be thinking about including in our classroom. So, Emmeline, thank you for doing that research. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's really, it's a really fascinating piece and thinking about what sort of impact job titles have on employment is a a really interesting thing to think about as well. Yeah. And we talked about that actually last week with um, uh, Jay Finelli, who was trying to hire somebody at uh, Cotton Bureau, and Mm -hmm. he didn't know what the heck to call it because all of these all the names out there. So it was pretty funny. Um, so now, now on to the reason why I've had, I, I asked you to be on today. So mm-hmm. Emily, you received a BFA in graphic design from the university of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, mm-hmm. but your first job while in school was as a visual designer. Mm-hmm. So what are the skills or knowledge necessary for someone to be a visual designer? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's a little bit interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Getting a degree in graphic design and then having that first bit of employment being titled as a visual designer. Um, so for a little bit of context, I think that was one of my first part-time jobs during school. And 
you know, I went and got a degree in graphic design. Um, but I actually began my university studies as undecided. I started at a major that I think was called general studies. And um, I, I wound up getting, so, so I, I wound up um, kind of deciding between two paths, one of which was East Asian languages and cultures, and the other which was design. Um, and, you know, I'd done a little bit of graphic design before. Um, my stepmother was a graphic designer, so I knew it would be a decent career path. But at the same time, I really didn't have a very strong idea of what a designer was. Um, so for some context, that first job that I had, I was working part-time at our university's student union called the Illini Union. And my title there was a visual designer. But essentially, my position wound up being... Um, working part-time, creating print or, you know, yeah, mostly print flyers or posters for upcoming concerts and events. And I even did a little bit of sign painting too. Um, so it wound up being actually an excellent introduction to sort of what a very traditional graphic design job would be, even though the titles between graphic designer and visual designer weren't necessarily the same. The skills were still pretty similar, you know, trying to communicate an idea through word and image. So yeah, those, those actually wound up being a, that wound up being a pretty excellent introduction into graphic designer, visual communication, whatever you might call it. Yeah. And the reason I asked is I hear the term visual designer used a lot. And oh, to yeah. me, when I hear it used, I just think immediately of graphic design, but now it could encompass interactive motion or anything, any medium on the planet that exists. And so <laughs> it just me, it just expands the medium that you work from. So I just kind of wanted to see if that sounded similar to what your experience was. Yeah, I think that's I think that's really true. Um, and traditionally, I've seen again. Um, I, I think I say this a lot, and I think I say that a little bit in the blog post that I wrote. Mm -hmm. But job titles don't necessarily indicate what you're doing at yeah. all. <laughs> you could be called a visual designer, a graphic designer, and doing the same type of work, or you could find yourself as a user interface designer and doing a little bit more UX work. Or you could be doing purely visual design, like skinning applications. So it's really difficult to tell exactly what you'll be doing with the title of the job that you apply for. Yeah, and that really makes it hard for educators to try to, you know, make sure that everybody has the right skill sets <laughs> when they go for yeah, that. Yeah, I certainly think so. I think it's I think it's incredibly difficult too. Um, yeah, and the the skill sets themselves have such differing nuance that it's incredibly difficult to pin down exactly what you should be teaching as well. What, yeah. does, what does that encompass, really? Yeah. So your next job was as a uh, graphic designer at Nuvix? Nuvixa? Yeah, yeah. This was a technology startup yeah. called Nuvixa that I worked at part-time while I was on campus. Yeah. So, when, so in, in your... Um, I think I got this off your LinkedIn profile. It said you worked <laughs> alongside software engineers to design layouts. Mm -hmm. so can you talk about that process of like working alongside a software engineer <laughs> and how it worked there? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's see. So I started at NuVixa 
I started at this technology startup when I was maybe about halfway through design school. And up until then, I would say I had a pretty traditional graphic design education. And I would, it would, it was almost traditional to the point of frustration for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I, again, I'd say I had a pretty traditional graphic design education. I remember in my foundations year, we got a local newspaper, scanned it in, printed it out, cut up letters, and then pasted them back on foam core to like learn about kerning. I mean, it was a really traditional print-driven education. Uh, mine was too. Yeah, yeah. And my, I, so this was what, 2009? Um you know, that's, that's not too long ago. I was, I was pretty frustrated, especially since my first experience doing any sort of design was when I was a kid. I mean, I think you could call it design. I certainly had no idea what I was doing, but I was like using HTML and CSS to hack a Neopets site or like Mm -hmm. work with my MySpace page. Um, but it works. I mean, I grew up in a native digital environment. So I had a really excellent foundational education in things like typography, using word and image in conjunction. But when it came to working within digital medium, I didn't have a lot of excellent educators or mentors to sort of guide me within that, within my graphic design program that I was going to school for. And that was very frustrating. Um, There was very few digital-based classes And we had a great computer science department, but there was really very little overlap between uh, the HCI department and our graphic design program. Um, So, so how did I, how did I get to a point where I was working with software engineers on a software product Mm -hmm. Um, that kind of wound up being a goal for me? I was like, well, you know, I, I was pretty interested in this. I think I think this is when I started hearing about like the terms user experience. And I thought, man, that sounds like the type of work that I want to do eventually after I graduate. Um, And so I did a lot of reading on my own and kind of came up with this um, very targeted approach to eventually get me there. And that included a lot of self-learning. It included essentially pitching every single design project that I was doing to include some sort of digital element. Um, And eventually I built up enough of a portfolio with things that I'd done for class or things that I'd done on my own that when I finally had that interview um, with this startup, I was able to essentially talk my way into it, which was really wonderful. Um, The downside, though, is working with engineers and working in essentially, I I would consider this a user experience role, even though my title was graphic designer and I Mm -hmm. did a lot of graphic design work. Um, Even though this was a really new experience for me, I understood that there were some things I should be doing like um, wireframing and prototyping things, but I'd never had anyone to really mentor me in the best practices for doing that. So my my work process at this startup was pretty conventional in that I'd be pitched an idea like you would in school. I would wireframe, I would like iterate on a couple different design directions and then hand it off to engineers to build it. And that's not exactly an excellent process for developing great products. And it wound up being a pretty difficult learning experience as well. Um, I remember (laughs) an engineer um, asking if I could export an illustrated asset as an SVG. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, 
what? <laughs> so there were some pretty harsh learning curves in that particular environment too. Um, but it wound up being incredibly invaluable working with engineers and working in an entirely different process than my, tr- my like straightforward design education prepared me for. Um, great. Um, you know, this wasn't, I, this wasn't one of my original questions, but this sure. is something. So I'm thinking about the class that I'm teaching right now mm-hmm. and I am struggling with what order to do some things in. And it, what it, it, what it comes down to is content. So I, I have students do like do atomic design where they're tracing, um, the, you know, Adam's molecules, you know, that the, the idea from Brad Frost and existing yes, yes. websites just to learn, you know, like, Hey, these things are there's a modular approach to this. But mm-hmm. then I say, okay, let's start doing, let's start gathering content, doing content strategy. Mm-hmm. What order would you, for a visual designer or a graphic designer, oh, mm-hmm. where do you think they need to know content strategy? Does it come before wireframing? I mean, or because it, it does infi- inform the wireframing, right? And yeah, that, absolutely. Okay, so they, they have to get the content, get the content strategy, then go into the wireframing. And then at that point, they can kind of get into the visual design or they can probably maybe do that at the same time if they're kind of like parallel, I guess. Yeah, I could see that. And, you know, this is why I find segmenting out a design process into this perfect step after step process to be so infuriating sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes you begin with zero content and it's up to you to work with your collaborators to figure out what the right. Um, message to like portray is Um, it's not quite as straightforward as someone giving you a prompt and saying, here's all the things that we want to communicate in this. Um, Let's make it happen. But it's also not the flip side of that where you have four or five paragraphs of lorem ipsum and you're trying to design layouts around that either. Oftentimes it gets really messy on the inside where you have some ideas, maybe some concrete text that you want to have in these interfaces. And it winds up being a negotiation between um, stakeholders and yourself as a designer. And I found that really difficult to replicate in educational environments. I think it's, it's a little bit messy unless you're doing some sort of in the classroom project with some sort of collaborator that's going to be with your class all semester. It's really tough. Thank you. Cause I, and that's actually what I did this semester. I had, oh, awesome. I have my students, they are redesigning a, they're going to be designing a website for a, a web design conference. And so I had somebody mm-hmm. who put on a web design conference, Skype in, and they awesome. basically at, they, they asked this person questions, you know, kind of like, so they could do the, but they did it on the, I messed up and it was basically about like the visuals for like creating style tiles mm. and element collages. So they were asking questions like, you know, who would, you know, they were just trying to get a feel for what the, what the visual identity of the website should be like. Mm-hmm. And I was like, ugh. And like after the fact, like, should they have already had the content? Do they go gather the content now? Because now they can't. Yeah, because they're doing user flow, and it just there's it. I couldn't neatly package it. I just couldn't, and I mm-hmm. still can't. It's very difficult to package it so neatly, and even if you do package it just so, 
it takes a little bit of the realism out of like the messy experience of doing collaborative design. So I think there's an advantage to having it feel a little bit chaotic. Well, good, because I can't, yeah, just, <laughs> I can't organize it any better than I think I did without, <laughs> yeah, so and that's why I wanted to ask rough. you. Yeah, when the minute you mentioned wireframe, I was like, oh, yeah, that's a question I've had in the back of my mind. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, oh, and, and, and back on to, like, working with, um, alongside the engineers. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a way, you know, from your perspective that that can be, like, replicated in the classroom? Oh, that's a, that's a good one. You know, I've found a really excellent way to replicate that. I did this in undergrad. Mm -hmm. The best way that I found to replicate this aside from working, you know, part-time with engineers is to do hackathons and have those fixed two or three day like events where you're simply trying to get something off the ground. Mm -hmm. And again, it's design students working with engineering students. So there's a lack of professionality about it, but there's a lot of value in having two people try to communicate in very different languages like that. Um, So that could simply be one way to do it. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah, it might be worth giving it a try. Yeah, because the biggest challenge I get with that is, you know, in, in any university, engineering's in another department. They've got their own set of courses. Mm-hmm. I mean, like trying to like sync those up so they can, you know, overlap is. Oh, it's painful. Yeah. But there's no excuse. There's no reason why we couldn't do a, you know, a weekend hackathon once a semester. Yeah, I think that would be great. Just and I get them together. Yeah. You know, I've met plenty of engineers that have been interested in learning more about user interface design or design thinking. So it could be a really nice mutual exchange, I think. Yeah, no, so thank you for that idea. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so your next job was Mm -hmm. as a user experience design intern at Intel. Yes. So um, I'm going to ask, it seems like a really silly question. What is a UX designer and how is it (laughs) different from graphic design? No, no, it's a it's a great question to ask. So what is the difference between a UX designer and a visual designer? Mm-hmm. I think, so first, first here's how I would dis- define a visual designer or a graphic designer. I'd essentially say that a visual designer is someone who solves a problem using visuals, aka word and image, to communicate with their users or their customers. Um, Whereas on the flip side, I would say that user experience is more focused on, um, it's more focused on solving a user problem. And I will include through a digital means since when we're often talking about user experience design, it's usually for a digital product, even though it could be applicable to, you know, physical products or experiences, like very, like very literally experiences. Um, The thing that I've noticed that differs strongly between those two is that um, user experience tends to be a little bit more holistic in the terms of tools that it uses. Um, As far as visual design goes, oftentimes it's using a lot of, again, word and image to solve a problem. But user experience designers have a little bit of a wider tool set. 
Sometimes they're conducting research and speaking with users. Sometimes they're conducting usability tests with users. Um, oftentimes that cycle of build and design is pretty tight. And so you're working with solving a problem over multiple iterations over time. And the process seems to be a little bit tighter with um, working with your users. Um, one thing that I've noticed, especially for friends that have taken traditional visual design or graphic design jobs, is that there's less of a tight feedback loop with the people that they're designing for. It's a lot more about pitching to a client as opposed to solving a problem for the audience that they're communicating with. I mean, that's certainly a part of it, but that interaction is a lot more client-based as opposed to user experience where it's a lot more, it's a lot more user-based. Although I am thinking a lot about in-house designers, mm -hmm. like in-house user experience designers as opposed to um, purely agency like visual designers. So that's a lot, I think. No, but that, that makes sense. And it clarifies something in my own mind because Mm -hmm. When I did my, I did an associate's degree before I did my bachelor's mm. and before I did my master's. And in my associate's degree, I did a lot of marketing classes, which mm -hmm. got down onto like the Phyllis, you know, like on the psychological level of. Yes, yes. And, to, and so I've always, because of that experience before I started taking design classes, that's how I've always approached design from a very, you know, like user what do they need what are they trying to accomplish that's what i've always gone to instead of you know going to the visual end first that's I fantastic guess. so that i mean i know it's not ex it's not ux but i mean it's it's a different i get just the way, hearing the way you explained it it almost sounds like a i just had a different philosophy on design all along yeah um, well you know it sounds like and you know i'm starting to realize this from this conversation it sounds like that type of user-focused design process is still present in graphic design and visual design, but it's just a little bit more segmented, that user research part. Mm -hmm. um, and it sounds like a lot of marketers will do a lot more of that as well. Yeah. Hmm. So, oh, and this is something else that's been on the top of, you know, on my mind recently. Mm -hmm. um, and it's with the, when you hear the term UX, I mm -hmm. think a lot of people automatically think it's technical. A lot of designers, mm -hmm. you know, traditional print designers or traditional, you know, mm -hmm. traditionally trained designers hear the word UX and they think automatically technical and they mm -hmm. kind of shy away from it. It's, yeah. not, it's not necessarily technical, is it? Not necessarily. Yeah. You know, visual designers, let, let's go with graphic design since it's a more traditional design term. Yeah. Graphic designers know their medium very well. And if we're thinking of a traditional print graphic designer, they know print medium incredibly well. And it's very similar for user experience designers, but the medium is often digital. And I think there's a stigma about that being particularly scary or menacing or just, I don't know, very difficult, right? Yeah. So, I mean, hmm, hmm. yeah, that's pretty interesting. And a lot of user experience designers just have a more, well, a more holistic ownership over the process. It's not to say that a graphic designer couldn't do the entire process. And in fact, a lot of user experience designers do employ graphic design techniques, designing with word and image, right? Mm -hmm. um, but it's just ownership of different parts. Okay. Um, 
so from so you had a traditional print um, background. Um, oh yeah, f- training. So mm-hmm. from that, what did you find that was really helpful and does translate really well to designing in this you know like digital context? Oh man. You know, one thing that my program was incredibly efficient at was getting students to understand how typography works. Mm -hmm. And now that I work primarily on digital interfaces for the web or for mobile devices, a lot of that is text. And having such great ownership over typography has given me a lot of success as a designer. So I'm Despite my frustration at turning mm-hmm. pieces by hand, I mean, I definitely came out with a really strong type background. Okay, so the typography, whether it, the the print typography training did translate into digital typography. Or, yeah, you know, there's different constraints. Yeah, um, different ways that text is rendered on a screen, different types of screens. Mm-hmm. You know, the medium has its own quirks to it, but there's still some fundamental ways of looking at type and understanding how type works together that is really easy to overlook if you're a self-taught beginner. Okay. So on the the flip of that question then is, so what did you have to learn on the fly that you're like, oh, this could have been, this this would have been so easy for them to just do cover in school for me? (laughs) Oh, man, (laughs) so much. (laughs) I mean... Yeah, let's see. I mean, I was I was pretty frustrated with my design education in many ways. And I think it was because, and I can mention a little bit about my time at Intel. Um, you know, after working at the startup on campus, I learned a lot on my own and very painfully kind of had to like ram my head against a brick wall just to figure out something. And I realized that I needed some sort of mentorship or to work with a team of more experienced designers. Um, And Intel was one of those experiences that exposed me to those unknown unknowns in my process, things that I didn't know that I should know. So good examples of that would be how to do effective usability tests or even doing preliminary customer interviews or um, generally like deeper user interviews to understand how... um, your users work, or even learning how to prototype. Um, I, those were the sort of things where I thought, wow, this can be a part of my design process. This should be a part of my design process. This is so great. Um, and I, I wound up feeling so frustrated that, you know, I wanted to do this excellent design for these digital mediums, but there were so many tools that would make my work better that I didn't know I was lacking like the ability to do great user interviews or the ability to do, oh, you know, like five-person guerrilla usability tests. Mm -hmm. Those would have made my entire experience in learning how to design better interfaces so much greater in school, but I simply didn't have the sort of curriculum that was set up for that. You know, it's, it's a curriculum that was maybe five or 10 years out of date. And that's not any fault of my school in particular. It's just kind of a fault of. It's all of us. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah, I'm not going to point fingers and say that my school was like the fault here. It's just, um, 
it's part of the difficulty of working in a medium that in in an industry that changes so quickly. Yeah. Well, and, and, and I think, too, one of the big keys that I kind of keep focusing on is that while the iPhone came out in 2007, it mm-hmm. wasn't until 2010 when media queries came out that you really started, like, I think that was the, that was the mm-hmm. game changer for designing and UX and kicking it into, like, a whole new kind of level. And then when Apple opened up the App Store, too, that was because the, they didn't do that mm-hmm. right away either. So if you go from like that time frame in that context, that's only six years old. A lot's changed in six years. Yeah. So I, I, I is we need to catch up in education, but in reality though, we're we're only six years behind. We're not. <laughs> I keep telling myself that. Yeah. So yeah, I sleep at night. It's not hopeless. Yeah. Um. So. So then, do you think? Do we need to rethink? visual design or graphic design to include UX principles? Or do you think UX is different enough that it needs to be its own program? I think that it can go either way. So I've seen students that have gone through 12-week intensive design boot camps, and they've gotten a large overview of the majority of user experience principles. Um, They've gone through that very traditional, um, very idyllic design process of research, wireframe, prototype, visual design, launch, uh, test, and essentially like make an app from scratch. But there's only so much that you can cram into such a short amount of time. And I feel that in many ways, visual design is part of that. I truly think that if I hadn't had three years of intensive design practice, I wouldn't be at the place where I was today. So the question is, if we have three to four years of design education in a traditional university and you've only got a fixed amount of time, do you add things? Well, if you add things, what do you take out? Mm-hmm. And that's the sort of trade-off that one has to make when considering do you have an intensive graphic slash visual design program or do you look at a holistic user experience or design thinking type of program? I think that there's value in either one, but articulating the difference between the two is incredibly important, um, especially when speaking with students that are considering potential careers that they might want to get into. So I could see it going either way, but I will say that I haven't seen a lot of programs that have successfully integrated essentially everything you might need in your current UX or product designer type of job. It's it's just a lot of breadth to cover. And since there are so many different areas where you can go broad, but then go deep in, mm-hmm. um, it, there's a certain amount of customization that each student chooses themselves too. Is this next statement that I'm going to make, is it a fair assessment that I'm about sure. to say? Um, when I look at visual design, graphic design, I think of that as something that you you can't have a 12-week intensive. You need to, it's practice and practice and practice over that three years. Where I think some of the user research and user testing, while, yes, you know, the more experience you have doing at it, um, you're going to be way better at it. But I, just knowing a little bit of it will more, will 
vastly improve your design without having to have a mastery of it. Hmm. I would say that's a fair statement. Okay. But I think of the flip side. Let's say you want to become, you, you look at that entire holistic design process and say, oh, I want to be an excellent visual designer. Then you need that multiple years of experience and practice. You could say the same is true also for user, user research. I know quite a few people that have had careers essentially stalled because they don't have the proper amount of education, even though they're pretty adequate practitioners of user research. There's a certain level that you need to get to there as well. Mm. Um, but those are a lot more, mm, I think that's a lot more focused. Okay. Yeah, it comes down to specialty versus generalist, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's a debate that I I haven't I've just started kind of having recently in in my own head. Yeah, yeah, what's what are your thoughts on that? You know, it's 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 going to have to depend on the faculty that you have. Mm -hmm. Um I think just if you've got a faculty that a body that's traditional, you know, it's come from a print background, I feel like they were going to you know the the technology part is going to be missing, like designing for digital. So mm. I think they're why they're going to have to, you know, stick to the more traditional in visual, you know, in graphic design. I think they could more quickly embrace the idea of user research. Mm. Whereas I think the, you know, uh, the faculty who are more into the digital design, working with HTML, working, you know, you know, playing around with the different, like, you know, languages and they can produce digital products or understand it better. Um, they're going to have, you know, they could really focus on like the UI mm -hmm. because they can, you know, say, okay, let's, let's now let's test this on an actual phone. Let's test this on an actual, you know, like smart device. And so maybe the, like the user research component for them doesn't have to be a focus because they can focus on the UI. I mean, it's, and I, this is the first time I really like fully, like actually tried to articulate that. So I don't know where that went. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, 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 it's pretty messy too. Hmm. But I understand what you're saying. And I, I think that from someone coming from a highly technical angle into improving their visual design or visual communication skills, there's, a lot of there's a lot of temptation to trivialize it as well mm -hmm. and I don't know if you've seen this but I've seen this personally working with um, some highly technical people that it's they find it easy to dismiss that type of the strength of that type of communication and because of that it makes their skills weaker as well which is unfortunate I haven't seen it personally but I've seen the discussions because you know mm -hmm. just I see it on Twitter all the time. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you see that back and forth banter of, you know, mm -hmm. like one not appreciating the other. And then somebody comes out and says, you're both are right. And <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah, I know I've seen that, but um, I haven't personally experienced because I have been in education long enough now where I've, I'm, I'm embarrassing. Embarrassingly, I have to go back and discover for myself, okay, what is the process for digital design? <laughs> Oh, that's fine though. Yeah. I mean, these processes change so often. You'll you almost have to be a lifelong learner in this field. Yeah, no, and you really do because I've just been over the past, you know, like year or so as I've been doing this podcast. I'm just like, oh my god, there's just it's 
it's just so much it's so different and it's just, insane and it keeps changing yes and i look forward to that it keeps you on your toes mm-hmm. it gives you something to look forward to all right so on to your next job because mm-hmm. you've got a different title and this one <laughs> i know yep and this Titles was nothing <laughs> yep but i think this i i i understand this one but and I'll tell you the only there's only one reason why I don't like the term product oh, designer. And it's just because I'm so used to thinking I immediately think of industrial design. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I to- I completely understand the rationale behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you want to talk about a little bit about your your job as product designer at the startup company block? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll touch upon the term product design first. Mm-hmm. I find that usage really fascinating because once I got back from my internship at Intel, one of the things I realized was that physical product designers, industrial designers already had a really excellent, essentially product design process baked into their, the, the way that they designed. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of product design starts with doing user research or working very closely with the user that you're designing for, whether that's um, maybe an extreme example is like OXO working with elderly people to design really excellent can openers because they have particularly sensitive grips, right? Um, That sort of research prototype um, test and build process is really baked into it. So it does seem to be a pretty good fit. And I found some of the industrial design classes that I took to be really valuable in making me essentially a better digital product designer. But um, with that in mind, I started at Block right out of college, first long-term job right out of college. And again, as far, this, this is one of those titles that really had no bearing on anything that I was doing. So graduated, joined Block, which is um, an online boot camp for learning how to code. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was the first designer on the team, the sixth employee. And so for a good one and a half years, I did absolutely everything that could be related to design. That meant doing early customer interviews to see what our early adopters liked and were kind of motivated with for our product. It was wireframing and prototyping interfaces for early versions of the product. It was building the brands, making t-shirts and swag for some of our students or our mentors. Um, It really was every part of the design process that you could possibly do And that includes going deep on things like user research or visual design. And it was, it was overwhelming, but I would say that the thing that I would identify with in the title product designer would be um, essentially that I had a very holistic ownership of a portion of the product that I was working on. Anything from, essentially uh, concept like concept to building it was kind of on me to make that happen as far as design goes and I, I guess that is how I maybe mark product designer is slightly different from a user experience designer but I think they're pretty similar glad you brought that up because you're I I like the term product designer because you're not creating a static brochure type digital experience 
Mm-hmm. You're creating a, you're creating a, you're creating a, a physical experience that just happens to be like located on a screen. And there's like, you know, it's kind of like choose your own adventure and you have to think about all these different ways that people are going to use it and work with it. So that's why I like the term product designer, but I just can't help but think of, like you said, the people at IDEO. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> making, <laughs> making the XO grips. Um, mm-hmm. So based on all these different experiences that you've mm-hmm. you've had, um, and because you've had now experience in a classroom, in an online classroom, mm-hmm. um, what are some of the things that you think educators at, you know, traditional institutions can do to start, you know, better preparing the students for um, this idea of like product design or, or UX design? What are some like low hanging fruit kind of things that we could do? Low hanging fruit. Yeah. I think that basic digital literacy is incredibly valuable. And uh, to translate that, some basic HTML and CSS classes go a really mm-hmm. long way. If you are designing for digital medium, but you don't necessarily have a clear understanding of how a page is put together, it can make your proposals and designs very, very difficult in the long run. So I think that that will help a lot. What about then, okay, and and I don't, with Android and I I know how to write HTML and CSS and actually PHP and a little bit of JavaScript, but I don't know how to, so, so the, but the medium, mm. so I understand that medium, but is the medium mm-hmm. of like iOS and Android the same thing? Mm. Yeah. How deep do you go too? Yeah. Because you could extend that out even to applying to an Apple watch or designing for VR or yeah. designing for other wearable devices. Like where do you draw the line? Yeah. <laughs> and that's a great question. Um, I think general exposure to a lot of different digital mediums is really valuable, um, regardless of how deep you go into them. Mm-hmm. Um, but another way to approach that would be to say, what are the fundamental constraints of each particular medium and how can I integrate that into classwork, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so designing for the web or no, no, no. So designing for mobile may be, it may not mean learning Objective-C or developing an app in Swift, mm-hmm. but it may mean understanding some of the form factor and some of the challenges of designing for a mobile device. Like where can your thumbs easily go? Okay. Um, what are things, What what's, what's the maximum or minimum button size that you need to have in order for it to be clickable? Um, the constraints, I guess, generally knowing the medium is really valuable. And then it's up to you and up to the student to determine how deep you get into it. Yeah. Again, I wouldn't necessarily say every student should have an excellent practice of JavaScript mm-hmm. because that may not be valuable for every single student. But for those that are interested, there's a rabbit hole that they can go down and it's oh. up for them to approach it. Yeah, good Lord. Um <laughs> Right. Yeah. So that's why I I focus on HTML and CSS because, like you said, you could, I you don't understand the medium of Swift, but Mm -hmm. you do understand the medium of a touch device. Mm -hmm. You can understand the medium of touch device through HTML and CSS. True. True. Very true. And that then can 
theoretically apply to, you know, across like different software mediums. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay. So um, one last uh, question. So I was looking over your resume Mm -hmm. and I saw that you didn't, I'm, I'm start. I'm questioning myself now, but oh, I yeah. didn't see you list a lot of user research mm-hmm. in the resume. But it, like that's all we've talked about. <laughs> so I I know, and I I think I get really excited about user research too. Yeah. But go ahead. So why didn't? Okay, so I'm curious. Like, if you didn't, do you not do it? That's why you didn't list it, or is it mm-hmm. just something that you you know that just kind of comes with it, and you? So you do do it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. So I, I, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. I really enjoy doing user research. It's perhaps doing, doing early interviews with your users before you even get to designing a product or designing a new feature. That's one of my favorite parts of the entire design process, understanding what makes a person tick and how whatever I design could potentially solve their problems. It's incredibly thrilling. I love it. Um, but up until that internship at Intel, I had very, I had zero experience doing any sort of user research whatsoever. And that was really my first exposure to anything like usability testing or doing exploratory user research. Mm-hmm. So I was I was really lucky in that. Um, uh, t- two of the two of the employees there, Sophie and Anna, they let me. Um, kind of tag along and observe them on some of the studies that they were doing. Mm. And the exchange was, you know, I take notes for them. So it was, it worked out really well. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. I know it was, it was great. It was a really wonderful experience, especially since um, Intel, Intel is a place that really values excellence when it comes to doing research. So I learned a lot there, but when it comes to integrating research into my practice, I would say that my skills are not as well-versed in traditional education, especially when it comes to something like doing visual design. So maybe it's a bit of, uh, maybe it's a little bit of self-consciousness there. Mm -hmm. I certainly do enjoy doing user research, and I think it's integral to a really excellent user-driven design process. But I also think that it's quite difficult to justify doing uh, it's it's difficult to articulate when you do user research well it, mm. it, it's really challenging i've found um all right so yeah i'm teach okay so uh, currently i like i said i'm having my students um design a website for a um web design conference mm-hmm. so what kind of what would be a really simple thing that i could do ask them to do is like pre-user research before they get started or is that not even the right context to do it in oh i think that's a great idea so what would Um, it look like then (laughs) well so let's see you're in the discovery phase yeah i think right about then it's really excellent time to do i well you're it sounds like you're doing stakeholder interviews with this Mm -hmm. potential conference runner mm-hmm. i'd say it's an excellent time to reach out to and you, you could do this in a couple different ways oh. um at a larger scale you could do essentially surveys with people who have gone to conferences in the past uh, but i find that the information that you get there is a little bit more generalized and it doesn't necessarily drive you into getting really great user insights 
So I might recommend having each student or teams of students go out and do one-on-one interviews with a few people that have gone to web design conferences in the past or are potentially interested in going to conferences. And, you know, that might be an excellent time to talk to them about what they find appealing there, why they would want to do this. Um, And it might be an excellent time to mine for things that they've enjoyed in conferences in the past, things that they haven't. It's kind of up to you to figure out where the right balance is in terms Mm -hmm. of why are they motivated to go to a conference versus um, what are the benefits, what are the good or bad attributes of certain conferences. But that could be a really nice way to at least develop some really quick user empathy. Okay. And the, the, the part that I find is hilarious about that is, um, I started this whole podcast series was actually, I first started off as like an online surveys Mm. and I couldn't get anybody to fill it out. And when I did, I did the the (laughs) stuff that I got from it was useless, Yeah, but man, it's been really like, I'm, this is going to be the episode number uh, 35 Cool. So that means I've been able to get 35 people to sit down and have a one-on-one conversation about this. That's wonderful. So it's just amazing. Like, just it's bizarre, but that one-on-one is so much. You would think it. It sounds like it's harder, but it's so much easier to get than data from a survey. And, yeah, it's a lot easier, huh? And I it's don't understand why. Personal. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's just. Um, it it seems a lot more personal when you mm. when you approach a person and say, "Hey, I'm focused on this. I would really value your opinion." That means a lot to another person, even if it seems inconsequential to you, for sure. Okay. Oh. I would assume that's why it's been successful, but also, clearly you're talking about very interesting things, so <laughs> there's that, too. <laughs> well, no, I'm just thinking more like on the meta scale that it's oh, yeah, yeah. just like, like I said, the survey is just nowhere near as effective as just like a one-on-one conversation. Yeah, yeah. Even it's... though like the one-on-one conversation is kind of hard to quantify, Mm-hmm. Like you could with an actual survey data, I still just find that that the data from that kind of user research or you you know interaction is just more valuable. I do too, and you know, I wonder if there's a way to do you know groups of students mm-hmm. talking to users and then taking that collective information and doing like a large amount of affinity diagramming as a class. Mm-hmm. I wonder that could be kind of interesting, but. Who knows? I wonder if anyone's done that before. I actually have in a in a previous class with a colleague of mine. Oh, uh, how'd it go? It was fantastic. What? Uh, but the problem is, it doesn't fit into traditional education. It kind of makes everybody's heads explode. But <laughs> literally, what we did is we had students, and this was back in Chicago. So we mm-hmm. had them take the the same route from point A to point B via four different methods of transportation. So they had to walk, bike, Mm -hmm. drive, and take public transit. So they had to take that same route, and then they had to journal their experiences Mm -hmm. and photograph their experiences. Mm -hmm. So then they came back, and then then we started critiquing their experiences. And then, you know, that leads to sticky notes, here's a pain point, here's a pain point, here's a pain point. And Mm so eventually what we, what this whole discussion, you know, spiraled into was biking in Chicago is not as friendly as they think it is. (laughs) And so then we, then that became the, you know, the intervention 
that became our intervention point. That's what we termed it. Mm. And that's when we decided, okay, well, we're going to solve the bike safety issue in Chicago. Go solve it. Oh, how wonderful. Yeah, but that just, I, it, it was the most rewarding experience I've ever had teaching, but that just, it doesn't fit into traditional design education. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it takes an enormous leap of faith on everybody that it's going to work out because <laughs> mm-hmm. you don't know, you're not assigning an assignment. You yeah, know, that's so true. Yeah. You don't know what's going to come from it. And so I, I wish I could keep teaching that way, but ultimately it's, I don't think education's ready for it yet. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah. So, um, Emmeline, be, before I let you go, because I see we're you know, starting to run a little bit long here, um, mm-hmm. is there anything that you're working on personally that you would like to share, or is there something that you want to talk about? You know, I care a lot about design education. A lot of my own education was self-taught, mm-hmm. and so I care very deeply about giving back to the community, especially students that are still in school that maybe are doing a lot of learning on their own. So currently, I do a decent bit of writing on Medium. Mm-hmm. I've got a couple articles out there, the one that you mentioned about job titles, mm-hmm. um, but some other tips and tricks about building your portfolio, getting ready for graduation. And so if there are any students out there that need some help, feel free to read through those. But I'd also like to make an open offer too, in that, Gary, if any of your students listen to the podcast and would like to reach out for a portfolio critique or have any questions or anything like that, um, feel free to do so. Go ahead and check out my Medium account and contact me there or hit me up on Twitter. All right. That sounds good. And now I know, now I'll know if students are actually listening to this or not. (laughs) I just assumed they didn't because I put education in the title. So I figured that scares everybody away. Oh yeah. They'll get bored. (laughs) Yeah, But in, in hindsight, when I listened to some of these over the, you know, gone back and listened to him. I was like, wow, this, this would, this would be really good for students too. Yeah. I, I, it certainly seems so. I've looked at some of your past guests and yeah. I can only imagine that they've had excellent advice for people that are still in school or still learning about design. Yeah. It's just, I'm just asking it from a different perspective. Sure. But it's sure, applicable. Absolutely. I'm asking it so I can pass it on to my students. Mm-hmm. So just cut out the middleman, so to speak. <laughs> Perfect. Go directly to the stores for the students. Well, that's all we have time for today on episode 35 of Design EDU Today. I want to thank today's guest, Emmeline Baker, for being so generous with her time. I want to thank the audience for listening, and I want to thank the Design EDU Today hosting sponsor, DigitalOcean, and CDN sponsor, Fastly, for making the hosting and distribution of these podcasts possible. I also want to thank the AIGA and the AIGA Design Educators Community for their generous support of my research that led to this podcast series. If you like this podcast, consider leaving a review for it in the iTunes store and share it with your colleagues and friends. To discover more about the Design EDU Today podcast and read the session notes and transcripts, visit the show website at designedu.today. To keep up with new show releases, you can follow us on Twitter at DesignEDU Today, like the Facebook page, or subscribe to the podcast through the iTunes or Google Play Store. Finally, if you would like to suggest topics for future episodes or give feedback to help improve the show, contact me through the show's Twitter account at, at DesignEDU Today 
or the show's email address at hello at designedu.today. Once again, thank you for listening to Design EDU Today.